0: And God said, well, I told you. If I told you, you wouldn't believe it. And then he has a second complaint, which is most of the rest of chapter 1, saying, you know, first of all, I'm complaining that you're silent. And secondly, now I'm complaining that I got an answer. I don't like the answer. And my guess is you've been there. You wondered where God was. And then when he showed up, he did a 180 on you. And you're like, I don't understand now either, either way. And he's a, he's a prophet that's like in bewilderment. And so this second chapter is mostly made up of God's response to Habakkuk's second complaint. And that's where we are today. Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 2. And let's stand together as we sort of just read through several of these verses of Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 2. And the Lord answered me. So this is Habakkuk has made his second complaint. And now God's responding And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on the tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul, now speaking of the Babylonians, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol or as wide as death. And like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And then there's a series of woes for the rest of the chapter Verse six, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him to say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long? And he loads himself with pledges or debts. Then in verse nine, second, woe, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high as if to be safe from the reach of harm. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Verse 15, woe to him, this is the fourth woe, who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show yourself uncircumcised. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Verse 18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says says to a wooden thing, awake. To the silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no such breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect on this answer to Habakkuk. Most likely, we're all familiar with the famous poem by Robert Frost, known as The Road Less Traveled. There's this famous little closing phrase Two words diverged, divert, two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So, so there are times. Robert Frost understands this, we understand this, that life looks like a fork in the road. You come to certain places and it, it just looks like two choices. I've either got to go right or I've got to go left. And you, you peer down the road, you try to figure out which is the way to go. You m- must decide. And perhaps Frost drew some inspiration on, from his, for his poem from an even more famous poem, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk, who does not go down the road of the wicked. So the psalmist understands there's two roads. One row is the row of the wicked. And blessed is the man who does not walk down the road. Instead, this is the better road, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And so there's there's there seems to be at times a, a way to just boil it down to two different ways to live uh, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked and if you look here in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 this same thing emerges look with me behold this is one way to live his soul is puffed up it's not right within him so so one way to live is a puffed up way where your desires aren't right internally and then there's a second way and that is the, the way of the righteous. The righteous will live by faith. So two ways to live. The, the way of the puffed up, the way of the wicked, or the way of the righteous. You're living by faith. And as I mentioned last week, Habakkuk lived in what we would call evil times. He, he had this bedside seat to Judah in, in its dying, gasping breaths. And he was trying to resuscitate the patient, but the patient was was too far gone. And he just tried to understand where is God, where is God. And you read this prayer, chapter 1, 2 through 4, basically saying, God, you seem so silent. And, And he's silent because the people of God, the people inside the church as it would be, have abandoned God himself. Uh, Habakkuk understands that. God understands that, that the real problem in the nation of Israel isn't the other people outside. It's the people who call themselves God's people. The people inside the church, shockingly, have turned away from God himself. And it reminded me something of something I recently read about a church in Washington, D.C. A guy visits a church and he says, When I first moved to D.C., I met a pastor of a growing church who didn't call himself a Christian. He didn't believe in the atonement. He didn't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. And one day, he explained to me, he wasn't even sure if he believed in God. And so, incredibly, a pastor of a church isn't sure if he believes in God. And see, see, Habakkuk's day... Is not too far from our day. That, that the, the biggest problem isn't with a political party or those other people, whatever you might put those people in, in a category. The biggest problem is inside. The people of God have actually abandoned God. And Habakkuk's scratching his head, and, and God, in some ways, is, is scratching his head as well. Can't believe that this has happened. And so God informs Habakkuk that he plans to discipline his people, and he plans to discipline his people by bringing an even more wicked people, the Babylonians, to conquer Israel. And so it's the, the really bad people disciplining the sort of the quite bad people. And so then Habakkuk says, well, now I have another complaint, and that is, why are you acting the way you are? And, and will there ever be any justice? You see where Habakkuk is. He, he feels like there's no justice because the people of God are sort of getting away with not believing in God. And then when God says, hey, I'm going to judge the people with the people of Babylon, he's like, well, they're even more wicked. So where is your justice? Where, where do you fit together in my, my thinking about who God is And then we see here in God's response, he's trying to outline for Habakkuk, and I believe for us, these these two ways to live. The way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. And so I want to talk about these two ways today, and we'll see how there is application for us. First, let's look at the way of the wicked. Most of chapter 2, as you saw in my reading, it's a song. It's written as a song. You see the way it's written in your Bible. And it's really a song with five stanzas, and each stanza starts the same way. It begins with a woe, woe is. And it's a a warning. He's informing Habakkuk that he sees the wickedness of the Babylonians. The Babylonians aren't going to forever get away with the way they've been living. They're not going to go unpunished. And, And in fact, God says, I'm going to punish all people who are wicked one day. Then he, Just as a warning up front, he says in verse 3, it may seem slow, but, but wait for it. My, my judgment, it may seem slow to you, but it, it's, it's definitely coming. And so let's briefly just uh, break down these five stanzas. The first two woes, verses 6 and 9, are similar. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to to be safe from the reach of all harm. In other words, woe to any nation, particularly Babylon here, but any nation who gains wealth... Dishonestly, any person who gains wealth dishonestly, any person who feels like they've gained so much wealth and they've gained so much uh, protection that they're like a, a nest on high when, when harm would come to other people. Nobody, nobody can really reach this particular person. They, they think they're out of harm's way. Uh, wealth has a sense, has a way of, of fooling you into believing that, that no harm can befall you. It makes it feel like there's a, a moat between you and danger. And, there, and if you have a big enough moat, if you have a big enough wealth, even if you've got it dishonestly, nothing really harmful can come to you. And, of course, that's not true. Some of you, World War II historian buffs may be familiar with uh, a castle that was built in Germany by the Germans for Adolf Hitler. It was built in the Bavarian mountains and it, it sat out sort of on a precipice and it had a 360 degree view of the Alps. And Hitler would go up there as if he was away from all harm. He would sip tea with his friends and he would plot the destruction of the world. And you know what they called that little place? Eagle's Nest. It's like like we're, we're getting, even though we're so wicked, we're up here on Eagle's Nest, and nobody, not even God, can come and harm us. Woe to the person. Woe to the nation who thinks they're out of harm's way, who thinks that because they've gathered so much power or so much wealth, that nothing could befall them that would be harmful. Verse 7 tells you exactly what happens to this person who gains evil, who sets his nest on high. One day your debtors will suddenly arise and you will be spoiled for them. The third woe, verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood. Woe to those who build through violence. Now the Bible is a book not just for us today, but for, for it's a message for all people and especially for all Christians. And, and I had to read this verse this week and think, if you're a Christian and you're living in ISIS territory and towns are being built by your blood, if, you were, if I was preaching in that congregation, what might I want to say here? How might these Christians feel about this particular thing? That God's saying, hey, I see what's happening, and it may be slow, but judgment is going to come on these people. Anybody who builds a town by blood, judgment will come. I read recently this report, ISIS crucified and beheaded twelve Christians. After publicly abusing, which is not the most descriptive term, but I won't use the most descriptive term, after publicly abusing the women, all refused to announce Christ and return to Islam. All were badly brutalized and crucified. They were left on their crosses for two days and no one was allowed to remove them. Two Christian women prayed aloud while they were being publicly abused. See, woe to the people, the nation, who think they can build something on the blood of other people. Judgment is coming on those people. It may seem slow... But God knows what's going on, and he's coming in his time. And certainly when you're waiting, people like us who live in this country of freedom, space, need to be people who pray for brothers and sisters who live in those kinds of conditions. The fourth woe, verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbor drink in order to gaze on their nakedness. In other words, they're a group of people who get other people drunk in order to have sex with them. God sees that and says, woe to that person, to that nation who does that. The fifth woe, verse 18 and 19, woe to the idolater. This is, it seems so crazy that you would make a wooden object with your hands and then worship that wooden object. But that's what's happening. People are carving things for themselves. They're making things for themselves. And they know they made it. And then they think it's going to speak. Or it's going to act. Or it's going to do something. Of course, you can make money and you can bow down and worship it. You can make a reputation and bow down and worship it. God God tells Habakkuk, woe to the Babylonians. Habakkuk, I see I mean, I know you see, and you're frustrated, but trust me, Habakkuk. I see, and my my judgment is coming. I, I see anybody who's building themselves up through dishonest gain. I I see violence. I see other. I see all those who are exploited for sex. I I see everybody who bows down to some sort of created object rather than the Creator. And God's going to judge those people. God's going to judge that nation. Now, as we peer down this road that the Babylonians have taken, it might be easy to peer down the road of wickedness and say, I'm, at least I'm not down that road. I would say that we need to look more closely because the, the five woes are just symptoms of a deeper problem. They're, they're just outward expressions of an inward problem. And like a master surgeon, God is gonna to try to attack this cancerous tumor that's affecting the whole body. And he explains this, this tumor in two different places, verses four and verses sixteen. So let's look at those. First verse four. Here's the tumor. Behold, his soul is is puffed up. In other words, in the Hebrew it means swollen or actually means to have a tumor. a, A person who has is going down the wrong way has a tumor inside them that's cancerous. It's it's spoiling all kinds of things, and that tumor is human pride, puffed up, thinking more of yourself than you ought to. One way the Bible describes people who don't know Jesus is that they're empty. And because they don't really know their creator, they have an emptiness in their soul. They're constantly looking for other things to, to fill up their lives, to, to make them appear as if they themselves are substantial. And then in verse verse 16, really the same thing said a different way. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. See, that these people are searching for glory. They're empty. They're searching for glory, which means weight. I'm I'm hollow, I'm empty, I've got to give myself some weight in this world because I don't I'm disconnected from God. And so the way I, I give myself glory is the way I give myself weight is I attach myself to things in the world that make me feel like I'm substantial. And you know, you can use anything, even good things, to give yourself weight, to give yourself substance, to fill an emptiness in your soul. Listen to how honestly this is described by Chris Everett, former tennis great. She writes in her uh, autobiography I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life was defined by being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody winning made me feel pretty it was like being hooked on a drug i, I needed the wins i needed the impl- the applause in order to have an identity so so i'm asking this question here If God's surgically opening us up and He's showing us that we have the cancerous tumor of pride, what is it that you're gaining your identity from? What is it that you must have in order to have substance, to have to have weight? It it could be sports, it could be a job, it could be your family, could be being a good preacher. So you can, you can have any kinds of things to say, I'm empty. I've got this pride problem and I've got to puff myself up so I look substantial. So I hold on to these things or people that might be good things, but they're not God things. And I move them towards the center, hoping that people recognize I'm a person of substance. I'm, I'm a person of weight. God does such a great job as a counselor here. Verse 5, he identifies one of the major problems of of taking outside things and making them eternal things. Look what he says. His greed is as wide as death. So, So if you're using money, the problem with money or any outside things, what does it say? It's never enough. There was some kind of survey that was given several years ago, and, and, and the question was, how much more money do you need to be happy? And, and generally, the, the feedback was 15% more. But do you know what happens when you get 15% more? You need 15% more. And almost all of us understand this, do we not? There are hungers. That we think, if that gets filled, I'll be happy. And almost as soon as you have it, it's not enough. I've got to have one more person say, that was a great sermon. One's not enough. I mean, it's wonderful. But I'll sure look for two. I've got to have 15% more. Because then I can get all this stuff that's going to make me happy. And when I have it, guess what? I need 15% more to take care of the stuff that I thought was going to make me happy. Whatever it is, it's something you've moved from the outside to the center. Because, because you've gotten disconnected to God and, and you, you're puffing yourself up. And you can't sustain happiness. You can't stop the fears and anxiety. You never have quite enough applause or money or education. And what happens if you're, if you're wise and you look at chapter 2 and you look at the Babylonians and you look down the road, you don't just see the Babylonians on the road of the wicked. You see yourself. Hey, I've taken that road. And maybe I haven't done all these things, but I've been puffed up. So if you do see yourself in the middle of this road, God describes how he's going to deal with people who've taken that road. Verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you, and utter shame will come upon you. So think, there's a cup in God's right hand, and it's coming towards you. It's going to surround you if you've taken the way of the wicked. And you want to ask yourself, well, what is that cup? Means something. Jeremiah chapter 25, again a contemporary of Habakkuk. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So everybody on the road or on the path of the wicked, which I'm trying to help you understand, is everybody a cup of God's wrath is coming toward you at great and terrifying speed. And it may seem slow right now, but when it happens, wow, I wish I had more time is what you might say. And since we're all on this path, then we immediately want to ask the question, is there any hope? Is there anybody who could take this cup of God's wrath for us? And the answer is, oh, yes. Oh, yes. You remember Jesus in the garden? What does he say? God, if there's any way, could you do what? Take this cup. What is that cup? It's the cup of God's wrath on all injustice, including my own. And Jesus is saying, I see Paul Phillips. I see the wrath that he deserves. I see your great justice coming down on him. And I've got to stand in the way. And God, if there's some other way. And there's no other way to take the wrath that Paul Phillips deserves. Unless Jesus comes in and puts himself between me and God's wrath. And not only do I not get what I deserve. Jesus empties out himself, and he empties out his glory onto me. It's incredible. That's the gospel. You remember what Paul says in, in Romans 8? If we are children, if, if we live by faith, if we are heirs, we're heirs of God, we're co-heirs with Christ, incredible. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his Glory. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing to glory. The glory that will be revealed in us. The glory that Christ spills out onto me as he takes the wrath that I deserve. So so people who live by faith in Jesus, puffed up people become faithful people. Empty people become weighty people by God's glory. And, And if we wait... Even though it may seem slow in God's timing, one day I will be filled with God's glory. Now, that's as clearly as I can put the gospel. Everybody is down the road of wickedness. Paul Phillips says, and everyone else. There is no one who does good. No, Paul says, not even one. And so we've got to ask ourselves, okay, I may not look like or have the symptoms of the Babylonians, but I have other symptoms that I know I have this cancerous tumor. Who can stand in the way? Who can take out this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh? There is a person. His name is, is Jesus Christ. He's God in the flesh. And so there's a, a second way to live. It's the way of the righteous, and that is the way of the righteous is that they live by faith. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous will live by faith. This is the second road. And it's probably one of the most famous verses in Christian history. It's it's important to notice here, just as an aside, that, that the way of the wicked has a list of bad behaviors. The way of the righteous doesn't have a list of good behaviors. You just need to say amen to that because it's not, okay, I have a bunch of bad behaviors. Now, in order to be righteous, I need to live by a list of good behaviors. So many people think that's Christianity. That's not Christianity. That's religion. And religion isn't going to get you saved. Faith in Jesus gets you saved. Once you have faith in Jesus, your behaviors begin to change. But you don't say I'm trading in a bunch of bad behaviors for a list of good behaviors because that's a terrib- that's not good news. That's terrible news. Someone once said Christianity is like you get a do-over. I don't need a do-over. I need something done. This, this phrase, the righteous will live by faith, I just want to close with three simple observations because it's quoted three times in the New Testament. You can just write this down. You can go back and look for yourself. Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is accomplished from start to finish by faith. Just as it is written, The righteous will live by faith. So the Apostle Paul is trying to make the gospel very clear. The good news is a righteousness, a right standing before God has been revealed. And it's not a righteousness of our own. It's an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from God. And so he's just saying you can't live righteous enough. You need another righteousness, something that gets revealed And that person is Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you think, gosh, I don't know, I think I can be righteous enough, I would just exhort you to read Habakkuk and say, the Bible says you're puffed up. You just think too much of yourself. I'm sympathetic with that. I've been there many days. But thinking that you can be righteous enough is puffed up. So a righteousness, a right standing before God has to come outside of myself, and that's the person of Christ. Galatians 3.11, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. So again, the Apostle Paul, warning of this trap of legalism. A legalist is a person who, who uses religion to give them weight. They're they're usually people who point to a list of things to do and not frequently pointing to Jesus who's done something. So a a relationship with Christ is one that I put all of my faith in him for what he's done, and none of my faith in myself about what I've done. The righteous live by faith, the righteous don't live by list. Number three, Hebrews ten thirty-two. 32. Uh, remember when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. So these people have been suffering for their faith. And, and the writer, perhaps again the Apostle Paul, is saying, you remember when you were in that great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Other times you stood side by side with those who were being treated, mistreated. You sympathized with those who were in prison. You joyfully, listen to this, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your own property. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your own property. That is happening today. Because you knew, this is what gives you joy, not happiness, but joy, because you knew that you had a better and lasting possession. Now, you... He closes with this, do not throw away your confidence in just a little while. See, it may seem long, but in God's timing, it's just a little while. He who is coming will come and will not delay. My righteous one will live by faith. So it's a a strong reminder for those who live in evil times to, to continue to stand firm. To continue to live by faith and not by sight. Which which leads us back to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, the last verse. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. No, no matter how crazy your life may seem, no matter how crazy. It seems like when you turn on the television and you watch news reels twenty four seven and everything's a news alert. And it feels like just everything's falling apart. God's trying to say to Habakkuk, I'm in my holy temple. Nothing is happening that I'm not in control of or going to make uh, come to some kind of completion in my time. Habakkuk, stop worrying. Just be silent. Exercise faith and trust in me. Easy say, hard do. It's hard to to continue to have faith in evil times. And Jesus understands that it's going to be difficult. So he says, when you get together, do, do this in remembrance of me. R- remember that, that I went to the cross and on a Saturday it looked like uh, all hell had broken loose and had won. But I'm about to do something you wouldn't believe. I'm going to conquer death itself now. And in the future, I'm going to conquer death for you. And so when you get down and it feels like the world's falling apart, you come up and you say, I'm a person who's living by faith. I'm not living by sight. I'm not living by my circumstances. I'm trying to engage in the world in the way that I can, but I'm trusting God has got his hand on my life, on my country, on my family, on the world. And when you come forward, you're saying to yourself, you're reminding yourself and you're saying to others, I'm a believer. I trust in Christ. I'm not a person who goes to church and says, I'm not sure I believe in God. If you're in that place, just stay seated and consider what what have you placed your faith in? It might be something like tennis, which seems shallow until you begin to identify your own idols and think, gosh, if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have an identity. But if... You trusted in Christ, weak as your faith may be. The great thing is that your salvation isn't based on your faith. Your salvation is based on the object of your faith. Let's pray. There's so much here in this little three-chapter book. so appropriate i mean it's 2600 years away and yet so much application to our day and we just say it can be discouraging it can be discouraging to live when it feels like you've gone silent and we just don't see you operating and then it can be discouraging when when we see you operating but it's opposite of what we would want and so In those days, we just pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to move in the way of the righteous by living by faith, trusting that you are in your holy temple. Lord, we're thankful on the night that you were betrayed when chaos was breaking loose, you calmly and in control said, this is my body. This is my blood given for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me so that when you become discouraged you you know that i'm in control even in death itself lord would you take these very common elements and give grace and peace comfort to your people in jesus name amen the ushers will come and dismiss you by rows, and if you're made that commitment to christ you are living by faith please come forward and Partake of the body and the blood of Christ.